Hey everybody, this is Chuck, and I'm here to tell you about an exclusive invite that we have just for you and Strong Towns members. I'm reading this off a script so you can tell. This is a thing we're doing for members. It's Thursday, April 8th. We're calling it Late Night with Strong Towns. It's going to be on Zoom so you can be wherever you want, and we are going to be here. Join fellow Strong Towns members and staff for an evening of, quote, Fun, humor, and competition. Does that sound fun, Abby? Yeah, sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> In this one-hour late-night show, you'll get to experience a Strong Towns trivia contest to test your knowledge of Strong Towns history. Are you in? I'm in. All right. A behind-the-scenes look and live UpZone podcast. What? Featuring Chuck Marone and Abby Kinney. Hey. I think that they're going to become for Abby and tolerate me, but that's... <laughs> That's all good. A Strong Towns Shark Tank with a chance to pitch your idea for Strong Towns to execute. I, I'm not sure if I would have used that word execute, but you pitch an idea and if it's good, we'll do it. That's what Shark Tank is, right? There'll be lots of prizes and plenty of jokes. Uh, it won't be me doing jokes. Grab a favorite beer or mug of tea. Why not a Diet Mountain Dew? Like what's the... What's the thing here about beer and tea? Like, what's that? I like chocolate milk. Yeah. Okay. Let's change this then. Grab <laughs> a, mountain, a Diet Mountain Dew or a chocolate milk and spend the <laughs> evening with Strong Towns. <laughs> Ticket info. Strong Towns members will receive an invite in their emails very soon. If you didn't get yours, just contact Alexa Mendieta. Her email is alexa at strongtowns.org, and she will get it to you. If you are a member of Strong Towns, seriously, that's the end of the script. Uh, we're doing this thing for you. Uh, it's going to be a fun time. If you uh, check your email, we will send you an invite exclusive. And hey, if you're not a member, now's a good time to, to go to strongtowns.org dash membership and get signed up. Abby, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too. Let's do See the you show. Then. All right. Cool. I'm Abby Kenny, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take a big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we Upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner in Kansas City, and today I am joined once again by our co-host, Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns. Welcome back, Chuck. Hey, nice to see you, Abby, and nice to see uh, your deep, dark Florida tan. Yeah, my deep, dark uh, Florida burn, more like. <laughs> I'm feeling better now. <laughs> I'm so glad. I was happy for you. You know, I we are friends offline as well, and so I was getting some of your photos and just cheering for you as someone who got to enjoy some warm weather in a beautiful place. It was amazing to see a beach. I, you know, as someone who lives in the middle of the country, water means a lot to me. And it's great to just be on a beach and be outside in the sunshine, especially after such a horrible long winter we've had. So I was impressed with Orlando too. We stayed in a nice uh, little town just north of the downtown area. And I, I'm not that familiar with the Orlando area. So it was cool kind of seeing 
the towns that they have just north of the city. Some of the best uh, urban design in the country is in that part of the world, and some of the worst urban design in the country is in that part of the world. So, but if That's you like a great water, way of putting it, it is. It's 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 some of the worst. If if you are interested in water, you should consider Keyside in Toronto, though. I think that's where you you might want to move to. <laughs> yes, very clever segue. <laughs> I do what I can. Oh, yeah, that was great. You must have done this before. So we are covering a story that's kind of a follow-up to a story we've covered in the past. Um, so this was published in The Guardian by Leyland Seco, and it's called Toronto Swaps Google-Backed Not-So-Smart City Plans for People-Centered Vision. So like I said, we covered this last May, how Toronto's smart city development plans were really following through as the Google-affiliated Sidewalk Labs had pulled out of the project amid the coronavirus-induced economic panic that we were all facing. Many listeners might recall the initial plans that were being teed up along Toronto's waterfront back in 2019 or 2018. It's hard to tell how long ago that was. Um, but basically, they were going to invest $1.3 billion in a comprehensive smart city development project. This would have included heated sidewalks and mass timber housing and public Wi-Fi, as well as thousands of sensors and cameras that would study millions of residents and build artificial intelligence that would make the city more livable. The plan was championed by the Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, who promised to create a community built from the internet up. There was a lot of buzz of the plan at this time and a lot of skeptics. People were very concerned about hyper-surveillance in the public realm and how that might impact the privacy of residents, calling it surveillance capitalism. So now fast forward all the way to 2021 now, Google-affiliated Sidewalk Labs has parted ways with the city of Toronto, and the Canadian city has announced its new vision for the area that centers people instead of technology. This move, according to the article, is reflective of growing skepticism over technology's role in urban planning decisions. So I, I followed the links in the article. It looks like there's a new RFP out uh, to find people to design and finance and deliver this, this master plan development project for the area. And the smart city's language is pretty much removed from, from this discussion. It's much more focused on sustainability and social equity. You know, how are you feeling about this, Chuck? I, I think it's, it's somewhat of a win because I'm very skeptical of smart cities, not to say that technology doesn't have a role in how our cities function, but it definitely seems like they've, they're changing their, their tune and how they want this area developed, perhaps. I think that it's going to be easy for me to be deeply cynical here on a lot of things. <laughs> There's two things right off the bat. First of all, five years ago, if you're going to market a city, market it as a tech place. If you're going to market a city now today, you know, something new, you've got to wrap it in a different, you know, brochure. So your brochure today has to be about sustainability and equity and, and all the, you know, the feel good buzzwords that kind of allow us to, you know, do things that contradict <laughs> what I think we would normally do. The marketing brochure just has to be different today. And I, I feel like that's the biggest thing is that we've got a different marketing brochure. I think the other part of this is that, you know, people like their technology. Planning geeks tend to obsess over technology. 
you know, we obsess over automated vehicles. We obsess over all the different ways that smart sensors and this and that can be used to, to track this and monitor that and optimize and do all these other things. Regular people like their technology too, but they like to pretend it's not as ubiquitous as that. Like we like to have the veneer that we have privacy and we like to have this veneer that we are, you know, alone and not being monitored and, you know, that the the device that is your smart device is not listening to you. We we want that veneer. So when you come out and like the you say, like we're actively all these things that are behind the screen, we're actually gonna like make as a selling point for the city. That's really cool for tech people, but it doesn't really sell to the masses, right? Like it's not that's not the marketing brochure that the masses want. And let's talk about the actual RFP process and like all that. But I feel like what has happened here is that the city of Toronto has recognized because they're very smart people. I mean, they, I've met with people from the city of Toronto and their planning department. They are very smart. They're very savvy. They get what they're doing. I think that they have you know recognized that the ground has shifted and they need a new marketing brochure for this project. I don't think it's that much more complicated than that, really. So I'm glad that you said that. And I kind of figured you would because that was my initial reaction. And maybe I'm becoming cynical too. But a, a lot of it is about I'm, marketing. I'm, wrecking. <laughs> I'm screwing you up, Abby. I'm corrupting yeah. you. You have such an optimistic view of the world. And then you talk to me and I, I reinforce these negative thoughts in your brain. So I'm sorry. I'm half cynical, half idealistic and optimistic. So it, it works, I guess. But but you know, that is the first thing I thought about is that they're just really changing the marketing, not so much the approach to how they want to develop this area. Strong Towns talks a lot about these big flashy projects and the tendency for politicians to really latch on to them. And to me, that's what the comprehensive smart cities move was. It was a project that was intended to be kind of like a moonshot project, no different than convention centers or entertainment districts, stadiums, airports, kind of like the whole monorail thing. And I can appreciate that Toronto is changing its tune um, and saying that they want this to be more human centered and less technology centered. I'm not entirely convinced that the new plan isn't just kind of the new mainstream planning product of the day, uh, rather than a genuine reflection of, of how the area could develop. But I am glad that they are not centering this all around technology because it's not only weird. I mean, let's be honest, the smart cities, uh, comprehensive, you know, Google tracking everything and building artificial intelligence. I find that to be just very weird. And it sounds like a lot of people felt that way. I think it's also very risky, and I think the example we can look to from the past is how we altered city building when we introduced a vehicle, and that was a new technology at the time. And it actually is relatively still a new technology that we have really ad adapted our cities to, and it has become integral to how we function as a society and although there's a lot of benefits that come with this new technology, I have a car, I love being able to get around. There's all, also a lot of unintended consequences when we adapt our built environment to a technology and we build it around technology. I think that in the case for smart cities, there are lots of cool ideas and new gadgets that come out of this space. I think heated sidewalks is pretty cool. I don't know if it's ne uh, totally necessary, but it would be really great not to have to shovel my sidewalk. I, I think that we don't want to center 
urban planning as a profession around technology. They should really be additive to how we function as a society rather than integral. It's very strange because I, you know, believe that younger people have a different, obviously they have a different sense of of privacy or surveillance than than I do. They're just growing up at a different time. And, and I recognize that that is shifting somewhat. These things change over time and our sensibilities are very different. I mean, I grew up in an era where the idea of like the Stasi in East Germany having a file on East on each East German was like this freaky thing. Like, thank God we live in this country where like they never would do that except for like only hardened criminals have like a database kept on them. Normal people don't. And and now it's just pretty much accepted that like, you know, everybody's information is not only fully accessible, but every company in America has, you know, database of all their, everything they can gather on everybody, let alone, you know, what the government has. I find the technology debate about this to be very interesting because it to me seems so out of touch with where the technology is. I, I have to imagine that people who are working in tech look at the planning profession and, you know, are like kind of silly conversation about this and just be like, what are you all talking about? You know, you're, you're talking about something that was debated 20 years ago and we went in a different direction. So why are you worried about, about this? There's a book that I read last year, Alexa, in our office recommended this to me. It was called Eyes in the Sky, The Secret Rise of Gorgon Stare and How It Will Watch Us All. And it's basically about airborne drone-based surveillance and how you know this is being used in the private sector, uh, being sold to police departments, and the capacity to really follow people and then use AI to almost in a minority report way predict where crime will happen and all this stuff. If you read books like this and, and you you grasp like what the technology can do right now, it's ridiculously humbling because you recognize that the things we're afraid of happened a decade ago and are, are kind of ubiquitous. And the things that I think you know maybe we should be afraid of, we've not even thought to ask about yet. When you get to Toronto and this development, again, I, I feel like the smart thing was the marketing package that we wrapped it in. And then that marketing package became not trendy. So now there's a new marketing brochure. But even if you read this article from The Guardian, I mean, the, the article says, while it retains a number of the elements from the initial glossy renderings, the new plan focuses more on integrating elements of Lake Ontario into parks and recreation. Well, that was in the original brochure too, and the original glossy renderings. What they've done is they've taken like, what from a strong town standpoint, we would say, go build a large thing all at once to a finished state. Get us a large, like immediate bang for the buck, a big, like all at once investment, and then we'll walk away and, and we'll have it there. That hasn't changed. That's still like the underlying chassis of this development. That's the, that's the, the thing that was all based on. And now what you've wrapped it in is affordable housing and uh, sustainability and environmentalism and social justice. I think the question has to be, is is this the underlying development pattern we want? Is this actually the way we want to go about assembling places? Is a place something to be built through an RFP process and a master plan and a handful of small developers all at once with whatever like the trendy vision is at the time? Or is it something that should be built by, as we say at Strong Towns, built by many hands 
over an extended period of time in kind of a way that is adapting and evolutionary and can grow and flex and change with evolving times and it really evolving culture and evolving norms. Will it adapt to us or will it be this like blip in time? And it feels very much to me like what Toronto is stuck in is the big planning mindset for this site and is just searching for like the right marketing mechanism to, to roll it out. Uh, they quote Mike Lydon at the end of the article, and Mike Lydon wrote the was you know one of the co-authors of the book Tactical Urbanism. He's a good friend of mine. He is a, a great thinker in terms of like bottom up how we evolve places. And it was interesting to me that he was interviewed in this because to me, it, Mike's insights and Mike's approach feel the antithesis of what. Toronto is proposing to do here and the way Toronto is going about this. It, it feels like the Mike Lydon 40 years from now will be tasked with trying to make this place work because now it is no longer trendy and fashionable and the ideas that we thought were uh, going to be great and revolutionary and, and, and all that have become passe and the place is not able to evolve because of how it was constructed. I feel like I'm deeply like negative and cynical about this, but it, it's it's really not how I would go about building a place. I think the marketing package is kind of, you know, superfluous to that insight. Yeah. And when you have so much space to deal with, I think that is one of the fundamental things that makes people go straight to the big giant project institutional developer model, because it, there's just so much along their waterfront. And so I do think a bottom-up approach takes a lot of patience and it can be more complicated from a development aspect or at least less controlled and centralized, which is less hard to sell on a marketing brochure by the city. And it just seems like cities oftentimes get stuck in this trap of needing things to be this big RFP process, this big feat, a ton of capital done all at once. And it's that at the same time is very difficult to do. I mean, it's taken them years to kind of get through trying to make this a smart city development. And now they've they've taken the smart city portion out of that. They've kind of left the rest of it and hoping that it will develop and somebody will respond to this and, and deliver what they are asking for with all this land. And just to go back to kind of the technology aspect of this, I totally agree with you. And it's funny, we go to the same dark places when it comes to technology, because I, I think part of the problem here is that number one, the, the people collecting the data in this case is Google. Let's be honest, that is an ethical dilemma to have data collected in the public realm by Google. And also just the the ability for people to opt out or opt in. I I, I do think that the planning profession does have an, an ethical obligation to protect people's privacy to some some aspect of their privacy. And we, we you know we currently do have sensors in our society. Let's not pretend that we don't have traffic lights that might collect your license plates data and things like that. I mean, those things already exist, but in this concept, it would be networking all of those gadgets together to model predictions and to collect lots of information really all in one place. And then also for these companies to be able to sell that data and use personal data. I, I, I just think that we 
we have not fully wrapped our heads around how valuable and how powerful data is. And we're just kind of beginning to understand how powerful that is. And, and a lot of the criticism was around centralization of data, but also there, there is a worry around like who is using the data and what is their intention? Because we shouldn't be naive as a society to assume that there wouldn't be a dictator at some point in the future. You just, you really never know. I think Hitler or Stalin would have loved to have a smart city. That would have been really great for them. And it's sad to go to a dark place like that. But I mean, you, you do look back on history and I don't, as a planner, want to play a role in evolving communities in a direction that could really compromise the privacy and autonomy of individuals so when we're when we're thinking about using technology to make cities work better, it's very important to anonymize the data. I think that it must be anonymized. And I, I think that was part of the reason this project in particular fell through, because anonymizing the data was not of interest to to the companies that were going to benefit from the data. Yeah, I think that's all true. I mean, I was reading an article last week about uh, this controversy about uh, local police departments purchasing license plate data from private companies that that sit. I mean, if, if you sit at the end of your driveway, you can take photos of all the cars driving by. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing illegal about that. When you take a photo and you get their license plate in that photo, there's nothing illegal about you having that information either. And if you set up a camera to do it automatically and then you have it, a scraping system that scrapes their license plate off and puts in a database, you will have a database of every time a car drives by and you can see that you know this certain license plate number drove by this many times in this place. Uh, well, that's fine if it's you in your yard, and, but if you go out and do this at, in a million cameras across North America, now you know where everybody is at all times and you can you know track that back. And basically the FBI is not allowed to do that. Most police departments are not allowed to do that, but there are private companies that do because they are, I mean, there's nothing that prevents them. And then they sell that data to the government. And so I do feel like we're entering into this space, particularly as it intersects city building where it's kind of hard to predict or hard to know or understand what the sensibilities will ultimately be. If you go to a country like Estonia, I think is probably the most advanced on this. They've done some really fascinating things in terms of ownership of data and how basically you own your own data and your own kind of identity. And so it has kind of switched the burden from the company collecting it to who they're collecting it on. Um, but we're not there yet, and we're a long ways from that. And, and I think this project kind of points out that that transition is going to be problematic. I feel like the, the overriding point here, and I think that the one that I think is most important, kind of gets to the way we go about assembling this and its capacity to evolve and adapt over time. I was searching for the name because I, I couldn't remember it, but it's Hudson Yards in New York City. A similar kind of development, kind of an analog development, but a few years ahead of this one. And there was a bunch of articles written during the pandemic, you know, over the last year about, you know, is Hudson Yards going to be able to survive? How will they do this? Uh, it was designed to kind of be this chic entertainment place. Demand for housing is shifting in New York. Uh, this place is like this, basically this big bet on the last 20 years continuing for the next 20 is that going to be true? Will that, you know, will that work? And I don't know. I mean, I, I still think it's unknown. 
Mike Leiden and I have actually talked about it. And, and his argument is, even if it fails, it's a decent development pattern and it will be reused in some way. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that, particularly as we untangle the financing and all the other thing that goes with it. But okay, I, I think that's possible. But the question that I, I have with Hudson Yards and the question that I have with this development in Toronto is, you know, what does the next generation of it look like? What does a reinvention of it and a, an adaptation of it to whatever comes next look like? And if the answer to that is it's only built for one purpose and it would basically have to be like almost completely dismantled and rebuilt in order for it to be used, you know, in order for it to have a different life or a different purpose than it has now, that's a very fragile model. And much of what we build in this era is that fragile model. It, it, it is based on an assumption that what is now ever will be, and, and we can kind of project that and figure that and predict that and build it in a static way and have that work for humans in the future. And, and I don't think that's how successful places are built. I don't think the future residents will appreciate our kind of short-sightedness in that way. Yeah, I think the answer is what any financial planner would tell you is to diversify, diversify, diversify. Like it was interesting to see in Kansas City during the pandemic, the places that were oriented towards one or two things just become completely empty once everybody was staying at home. And and that has definitely bounced back um, over the past year. But back in April, man, there were areas of our city that they were built all at once and they were built for really one or couple of different things and nobody was there. It was a ghost town. And in this district that I live in, which is very diverse in all ways that you could think of, I mean, there's tons of different types of housing, different businesses, the spaces have been adapted, reused over time. And it was the one place that I saw people out like they just because people were around and and businesses were able to stay alive because of that and I I think that making sure that we're building places that can be easily adapted and reused is of utmost importance in the development industry and to just be very careful about not building places that are built for really one thing like not just for tourists not just for commuters not just for residents and just making places very adaptable. I think I've heard the rule of 10 is important. Yeah, I, I think even more though than the advice from the financial advisor, to me, like Darwin's advice is, is the best one, or Darwin's insights, you know, build incrementally, build to adapt, you know, build over time. And when we look through history, we see that the places that not only perform the best, but endure are those kind of places. And it's so inconvenient today to work at that scale because when you get Justin Trudeau involved and you get the you know <laughs> high profile uh, mayor of Toronto and a major North American city involved, um, the idea of going in with large amounts of capital and just sweeping things away and just saying we're going to build this in our you know beautiful image, uh, okay, sometimes that works, and I know you know people who would point to that would would point to all kinds of examples where that has worked. But most times it it does not, and it does not uh, over time, and it does not endure over time. And I think that's the biggest, it, that should be the, the thing that concerns us the most. Plus, if the goal is to, you know, if the marketing brochure now is 
environmentalism, social justice, equity, affordable housing. Show me the place that has been built at all at once at this scale that does that. That subset of places is zero. The places that actually do that are places that are built along with people by many hands over multiple generations. Yeah, a city built by many hands is not convenient for politicians, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, right, nor for you know developers that are listed in the Fortune 500, the yeah. kind that will do an RFP on this, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Maybe you and well, I should do an RFP. We come up with the, our plan, the Strong Towns plan. Yeah, I like that idea. Full we'll, of public we'll subsidies for Abby and Chuck, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's going to be messy. The implementation is it's going to be, be messy, complex. But, it, but if you give us a bunch of money up front, we'll see it through. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Well, that is all the time we have for today. But before we conclude, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that we've been up to lately, anything that we've been reading or watching, listening to in our time. So Chuck, what have you been doing? I started a new audiobook, which is actually one of the great courses from the Great Courses series. It's the story of human language, and the professor is John McWhorter. It is a course all about the evolution of human language, about how words change over time and how you can learn about uh, people and society and culture from the way words change and adapt and evolve. It is like utterly fascinating. And I find myself just like, can't wait to get to the next chapter because I've, I've learned so much in, in every step just about how lazy intonations of words that we all get kind of used to will then become like the preferred, uh, you know, exquisite, like this is the high minded way to talk about things and how that shifts and changes over time. Um, very fascinating. And, and as a Minnesotan who, you know, has a little bit of that in me where we talk, uh, in our Minnesota way, um, you know, it's, it's fun to learn about dialects and, and evolution of, of thought of, of speech and culture. Yeah. That sounds pretty lit. I might say pretty lit. <laughs> now, now you're getting all young on me. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. I, that's that's always been something that was really interesting to me when I was studying Spanish, just how some Spanish words actually come from other cultures outside of Spain and and why that is and the history of that. Well, let, my, me give you, my, let, let me give you one real quick. Like today, one of the things he talked about was the word silly and how like in the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, the word silly uh, would have meant uh, like blessed or um, very, um, I'm going to use the word chaste, but I mean like very, not chaste in the way we think of it, but like the blessed virgin would have been the silly virgin, you know, like a silly woman would have been a woman who would have been, you know, someone who's very virtuous and, and this kind of thing. And we go back and we read that stuff today and we see like the silly woman and we think, well, she must be kind of silly. And that, that <laughs> word has, that word has evolved over time to mean something very different. And it was evolved because of the way it was used as slang and the meaning of it literally changed to be something very different than what it originally was. So when you read Shakespeare and Shakespeare talks about silly women, he's not talking about silly as in absurd. He's talking about silly as in, you know, elegant, thoughtful, virtuous, that kind of thing. Very different. Yeah. 
Yeah, Shakespeare is so challenging to read because of that. Yeah. When I was a student, I think in high school or middle school, maybe we had to read Shakespeare, and it's it's like impossible to understand, even though it's in English, which is amazing how much to to think about how much language has changed over this time. Yes, agreed. Yeah. Um, it's it's always I, I've heard said and I've experienced that Shakespeare is like especially if you're not versed in it, is great to watch. And I've been to a, a couple of Shakespeare plays. I, I went to one in Stratford, actually. That was amazing. But you get the gist of what's going on watching it and listening and watching the, these great actors go through it. Very hard to read. I saw The Twelfth Night, and I'd say I, I could read it and not understand what was going on. But watching it, you got a real sense of of it all. Yeah, it will very much challenge your reading skills. <laughs> very difficult. Well, so I'm actually currently listening to a mini series podcast called Nice White Parents, and it covers the 60 year history of desegregation in public schools. And it specifically looks at the New York public schools. And it's interesting because it shows how kind of well meaning yet very affluent white parents and how they impact the dynamics of the public school system and how it illustrates how capital really will affect the the success of students and what kinds of programs are offered at schools and whether or not schools have actually become desegregated over time despite people's best intentions. It's such an eye-opening podcast. And I know to some listeners that the the title of it might be kind of a turnoff, but I would highly recommend listening to it because it made me uh, realize things about the public school system that I'd never thought about before. And it, it seems like public school is something for most people that you kind of leave in the past and you don't pick it back up until you have kids later in life. And then when your kids are through school, you kind of leave it behind again. And it actually talks about that and how we repeat history because the people involved in public schools, they, they come and they go and then people continue to reform the schools. And it's, it is amazing to me that over 60 years, we have still not figured it out. And it's kind of, it really is unacceptable that we haven't figured it out, but there's been endless reform of public schools and we still that continue to face that as really one of the country's leading issues all over the country, really. Yeah. That, that, that sounds really fascinating. What's the name of this podcast again? It's called Nice White Parents. All right. I'm going to, so, I am going to check it out. I love all your recommendations, Abby. So yeah, it's, it's an app title because the parents, they really do have the best intentions, but they want their kids to be in a desegregated school. And so they're very intentional about how they, how their kids are going to be educated yet, despite the best intentions, it, they, there's this kind of unconscious power dynamic that plays into the public school system and it, it impacts how schools are set up and, and how they're funded and how they um, ultimately provide for the kids who are there. And the kids you know, are very unaware of, of that situation and, and don't realize it until way later in life. Yeah. That sounds great. I'll check it out. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Well, thanks for taking the time with me today, Chuck. And thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. See you, Chuck. Take care, Abby.